Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Brink Lindsay. I'm Vice President for Research, and I'm delighted today to be moderating a book forum on Tyler Cowen's latest book, Create Your Own Economy, The Path to Prosperity in a Disordered World. Uh, I've read the book. It's a delightful read. There's something fascinating uh, and new to learn on just about every page. I urge all of you uh, to read it. Uh, but uh, as a fellow author, I should say that it's uh, really more important that you buy the book than that you read it. Uh, <clears throat> so it's a lovely red cover. Tyler will be out available to sign uh, copies so you can leave it on your coffee table and someone can flip and uh, see that you're cool. Uh, so anyway, buy the book and read it. But uh, let me start uh, with a, a disclaimer. If you type create your own economy onto Google, uh, you will be given two autocomplete options, create your own economy Bob Proctor and create your own economy Proctor. If you click on either of these, you'll be directed to a website called createyourownEconomySeminar.com. At the top of the homepage uh, is the motto in quotes, you can earn so much money while you're sleeping that you can do what you want while you're awake. <laughs> so if you're in the audience today uh, because you're interested in that, I'm sorry, you're out of luck. It's the wrong book. This is, we're creating another economy here. Now, I should say that I think Tyler's book does offer its own path to riches, but of a, a spiritual rather than pecuniary kind. Maybe the motto for Tyler's book website should be, you can create so much meaning and fulfillment uh, while goofing off on the Internet uh, that you can do whatever you want to when you're offline. <clears throat> Appropriately enough for a book that spends a lot of time talking about how to harness uh, the powers of new information technologies, let me proceed from this uh, Google disclaimer to a Facebook anecdote. I don't post very much on my own Facebook page, but a few weeks ago I left a brief line that I had just finished uh, Tyler's new book, uh, whereupon a friend commented, uh, sounds like an updated version of Harry Brown's book, How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World. Uh, for those of you who don't remember or never heard of that book, uh, it was a big bestseller back in 1973, and one of those uh, cultural artifacts that gave the me decade its name. It's all about how to get exactly what you want out of life uh, and how not to let other people get in the way of that. My immediate reaction was that this analogy was so completely off uh, that I didn't even respond uh, to my friend's comment for fear of sounding dismissive. But then the more I thought of it, the more I came to realize that uh, this was actually a wonderful way uh, to make sense of Tyler's immensely interesting but rather hard to summarize book. Both books are about the freedom of the individual and how effectively to exercise that freedom but they take on that common topic from completely different angles and with completely different sensibilities. Brown's focus is on all the traps, as he calls them, that can prevent you from being free and in control of your life. Tyler, on the other hand, focuses on all the opportunities that the contemporary world offers you to live more in accordance with your choices and desires and interests. Harry Brown concentrates on how to shed connections to other people that don't make you happy while Tyler concentrates on how to make connections to other people that do make you happy. Brown is concerned almost exclusively with freedom from or negative freedom, while Tyler is most concerned with freedom to or positive freedom. Uh, interestingly, and perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, this difference uh, in focus on how to organize your personal life is mirrored in the differences between Harry Brown and Tyler Cowen in thinking about how to organize the political life of the larger society. Harry Brown was a big L libertarian who eventually ran as the Libertarian Party candidate for president in 1996 and 2000. And for big L libertarians, negative freedom, freedom from government, is the only kind that matters. 
Tyler, by contrast, is a small L libertarian. Uh, some of my Cato colleagues would say a very small L indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Who has written for Cato Unbound uh, that his vision of libertarianism is based on, and I quote, a deep belief in human liberty, but seeing positive liberty, what can I do with my life? as more important than negative liberty, how many regulations are imposed on me. So consider Tyler's book, A Small L Libertarian Testament to the Power of the Individual, and how to enjoy all the positive freedoms that modern affluence and technology afford us, TARP and auto bailouts and stimulus bills notwithstanding. So with that preliminary stage setting, it's time to turn the stage over to Tyler. Let me just say a few introductory words, Tyler. Uh, he's the professor of uh, economics at uh, George Mason University. Uh, he also writes uh, the Economic Scene column for the New York Times. Uh, perhaps most of you may know him best as uh, the uh, blogger at the marvelous uh, weblog Marginal Revolution. Uh, he also is the author of an invaluable uh, D.C. ethnic dining guide, so whenever you want to go out, you should check with Tyler first. He's the author of many books, uh, including... What Price Fame, In Praise of uh, Commercial Culture, Creative Destruction, How Globalization is Changing the World's Cultures. And at the summit of all of his achievements, he is an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Tyler Cowan. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Brink, for the introduction. Uh, the key idea of my book, I see, is this notion of information processing. If I had to give a two-word version of the book, information processing, it's an important idea. And there are two major tracks the book runs along. One is a defense of the Internet, the web, what you might call modern technological society. It's a defense and advocacy of the opportunities for education, self-education, and entertainment. So I take phenomena like Twitter or Facebook or blogs, and I show why I think they're interesting, uh, how they're helping us process information in new ways, why they're exciting, uh, why they build human connections, why they're emotionally rich, why, why and how they help us frame our lives, and why they make the world uh, a place where there's more free, wonderful stuff than ever before, pretty much at the fingertips of most of us, at least as long as you can afford a computer and an Internet connection. So that's a whole big strand of the book. It's not the main thing I'm going to talk about today, but part of the book is applying this idea of information processing and saying that because of computers, we can now process information in different ways, we can collect, arrange, order, organize information, store it in more powerful ways than before. A second strand of the book has to do with autism or the autism spectrum, or what I call most broadly human neurodiversity, and this also links back to the key idea of information processing. Uh, it's a cognitive strength of autism that many or perhaps all autistics are very good at ordering, classifying, arranging information in preferred areas of interest and then pursuing knowledge in these areas with a kind of extreme or intense focus. Uh, a lot of what the book does is tie together these two areas, information technology and human neurodiversity, by showing, in essence, what we're trying to do with the web is to mimic some of the cognitive strengths of autistic people. But if we're not autistics ourselves, what we have to do is use technology to help us in this endeavor. So like a big, a big picture summary of the book might be something like, uh, yes, in some ways we are becoming more artistic, but this is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. We're not becoming more artistic in the genetic sense, but we're achieving capabilities that are, as individuals, more like those which artistic people have. A uh, part of the book presents what I would consider to be a revisionist portrait of autism, 
In the 1960s, it was commonly the view that autistic people, or most of them, were mentally retarded. Over the last 20 years, there's been more and more research showing the cognitive advantages of autistics, recognizing they often have very difficult life problems. But when autistics are given tests for pattern recognition, uh, information collecting, noticing small details, detecting changes in musical pitch, certain kinds of memory, if you give them some problems in experimental economics and all these areas, on average, actually it seems that autistics do better. So there's this general sense of humanity having this great diversity of cognitive profiles, which we call neurodiversity. And a, the vision of the book, the moral vision of the book, is about the power of the individual human being uh, to take modernity and become more like himself or herself, to become more authentic, to become more individual, to become more diverse. And it's really a message from Adam Smith that's driving a lot of themes in the book, Smith wrote that division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. I think you can also argue that the power of human neurodiversity is limited by the extent of the market. And as we move into contemporary society, people who are in, in some ways different, whether neurologically or otherwise, they can achieve greater power, greater opportunities, and that we all ought to take this revisionist view, which I would, for instance, also apply to what's called uh, ADD or ADHD, so-called attention deficit disorder, I'm arguing uh, ADD we shouldn't call a disorder, autism we shouldn't call a disorder. We should recognize them as cognitive profiles which have advantages and disadvantages. And in some individuals, the social advantages may outweigh the disadvantages or vice versa. So it's very much a revisionist view of uh, creativity and cognition and how it relates with economic growth and modernity, which is overall a very optimistic picture not only of information technology, but of this notion of the, the future of human neurodiversity. That's my overview of the book in big picture terms. What I'd like to talk about in my remaining time are just some of the arguments in the book about politics. There's a chapter called Autistic Politics, which is a deliberately jarring title, uh, but I, I chose it to be jarring on purpose. And one of the points I make is that when it comes to politics, uh, there are aspects of the autistic cognitive profile that I feel would greatly improve politics and that we could learn a lot from this cognitive profile. Uh, just to summarize what I think those aspects are, uh, autistics, in my view, and there's some evidence behind this, they're less likely to think in terms of us versus them. They're less likely to encode false memories. Uh, they're less likely to think in terms of simple stereotypical narratives. They're more likely to remember particular individual facts when shown a narrative, uh, less likely to use narratives to oversimplify and uh, when it comes to economic experiments, they're less likely to be fooled by framing or endowment effects, which means, I think more broadly, the notion that simply because something is theirs, or maybe that a point of view of theirs, it doesn't, for that reason alone, make it more valuable. I also view autistics and neurodiverse people more generally as kind of natural cosmopolitans, that if an autistic person grows up being very different, feeling very different in the schoolyard, uh, and then that same autistic person is, say, you know, 27 years old and being asked to believe that the real differences across human beings are defined by what nation you belong to. Uh, I believe this is a very unnatural thought for most autistic people, that the idea that there is a common humanity, uh, which autistics sometimes are accused or defined of not belonging to, is a very powerful notion in what I would call autis autistic thought. And this notion of the common humanity is a very cosmopolitan one. 
Uh, so my vision of an autistic politics, it's not any particular political point of view, but I think it would embody these features of being extremely cosmopolitan, of uh, more interested in being objective, uh, not seeing everything in us versus them terms, not being so preoccupied with the notion of revenge, and uh, really thinking in some pretty fundamentally different ways about what politics is. Uh, I think the way the battle lines are drawn in the world we live in, the battle lines typically fall in terms of what are your conclusions. Like, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? Are you a Libertarian? Are you a Socialist? And this, the more I think about it, uh, this strikes me as extremely odd. Why should the battle lines be drawn in terms of conclusions? Another way of drawing the battle lines would be, say, in terms of how people think. So if I take someone uh, like Matt, who's one of the commenters, I read Matt's blog all the time. Uh, Matt, I think, would agree that he and I disagree on a lot of issues. Not on everything, but we disagree a lot. Like, we disagree every day. We sort of write back and forth to each other and to others, and even if we don't call each other by name, we're, like, disagreeing in public every day. But at the same time, when I read Matt, I have this feeling, like, if I were a progressive, this is the argument I would make. I feel that way when I read Matt. There's other writers, like when I read Paul Krugman, I don't feel that way. I don't think if I were a progressive, I would argue like Paul Krugman. Uh, so there's this method of thinking in common. So there's the question, like, should I be emotionally, intellectually, whatever, more allied to people with whom I share conclusions or with whom I share a certain method of thinking? And when I disagree with Matt, which is frequent, I feel I can always figure out very quickly where we disagree. There's something like about the framework that we have in common. And that, to me, seems like a powerful... Uh, commonality. So in general, I'm interested in getting people to explore or re-explore what are our true commonalities with other people. Uh, we should rethink these commonalities in terms other than us versus them. Uh, I feel myself actually not very attached to a lot of libertarians. I think they, they think very differently than I do. So when Brink said maybe I'm a small L libertarian, maybe I'm a very small L, like you're wondering what font, you know, what typeface. <laughs> Can we get that L down to the quantum level? Uh, I don't know. But I guess I would say the people I feel like allied with are people uh, who think in particular ways. And that, to me, as I get older, is becoming a more important distinction. So like how big Alan Libertarian I am uh, isn't what I think about so much these days. It's like how can we develop better methods for thinking? And when I write Marginal Revolution, for me, it's not fundamentally about conclusions. Obviously, I'll tell people what I think. But it's about trying to develop or illustrate or myself learn some dialogic form of thinking, which is in some way fundamentally open, which I think is what the blogosphere is, and trying to learn from that myself. And that, to me, over time, has become a powerful vision. And emotionally, in a lot of ways, it's more important to me than any particular set of policy conclusions. And so other people who share that, which would include also Robin on my right, who's my colleague and a dear friend of mine, uh, Robin and I have a great common language. And, uh, you know, when we talk about things, we get immediately to the point where we disagree, and then we can very often make progress on it or maybe change each other's mind. And that, to me, seems like a more important point of commonality than just conclusions per se. Uh, so the political part of the book, which is not the major part of the book, the major part of the book is about the web, information processing, and human neurodiversity. But I do think the arguments of the book have very real implications for politics. Again, not in any particular partisan or policy direction, but in terms of how we think about politics, like what's really important in choosing a political alliance, and how we can actually improve our own abilities to understand things and be communicators. Uh, other stuff in the book I'm just not going to get to. There's like the real secret of Sherlock Holmes, and also what to me is the single most surprising fact about Milton Friedman, 
I learned researching this book that Milton Friedman was apparently born with a neurological condition where he cannot enjoy or appreciate music. This to me is startling. Uh, Sigmund Freud and Che Guevara, it turns out, uh, have the same condition. It's like a tr you know, Jeopardy question. What do Milton Friedman, Che Guevara, and Sigmund Freud all have in common? <laughs> well, if you read my book or if you come and hear me, you'll find out. But there are a lot more interesting tidbits like that in the book. And I wrote this book to provoke people and stimulate them and put forward a very personal vision of really the power of the individual human mind and why we should respect that and place it really at the center of our thoughts and emotions. Uh, now I'll turn over to the commentators, but thank you all for coming out. Thank you very much, Tyler. Our uh, first commentator is Matt Iglesias, who is a star of the blogging world and has been one uh, since the blogging world was in its infancy. Uh, Matt started blogging when he was still uh, a student at Harvard University uh, and uh, caught attention that way. Uh, got a job right out of college at the American Prospect, uh, continued his blog, went on uh, to carry his blog to the Atlantic Monthly, uh, and then uh, more recently moved to the Center for American Progress, uh, where he blogs there. Uh, Matt is also uh, an author of a book, Heads in the Sand, How the Republicans Screw Up Foreign Policy, and Foreign Policy Screws Up the Democrats. So uh, everyone, give us a warm welcome for Matt Iglesias. Thank you, Brink. Um, you know, I think I, I should just start off by, by saying how much I, I really enjoyed this book. Um, it, it, it's true, as an author, the most important thing is that you buy the book rather than that you read it. Um, but I do recommend reading it. I, I had some trouble when I wanted to, to write on my blog uh, about the book exactly expressing what it's what it's about, because it's a, it's a slightly strange work. So, so instead, I just resorted to explaining how much I'd enjoyed it, that I, I had opened it up and started reading it, planning to sort of go later in the afternoon for a, a very quick bike ride to go meet a friend. And I actually worked out in my plan, uh, in my head, a, a much more laborious, bus-oriented way of getting to the meeting, just so that I could have more time to sort of get further into the book. Uh, so that's how you know, you know, you have something, you have something good on your hands. Um, that said, I, I thought maybe I, I would mount a defense of sort of conclusions-based political thinking. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's unquestionably true that there's something very congenial about finding people who have sort of sympathetic uh, ways of thinking about the world. It's it's one reason why I read Tyler's blog and I read Robin's blog. And there's a, you know, community of people who are talking about stuff, who are people who sort of think in similar ways, make arguments that that we find appealing to each other, even if we don't agree with the conclusions. And, you know, so you can see why on the Internet there are communities like that. It's unquestionably, you know, as the book lays out, I think one of the great strengths of the Internet and, and modern information technology, that it helps people find connections with other people that are sort of go beyond the obvious. Um, that said, I, I think politics has traditionally been oriented around our, our conclusions on specific policy ideas, you know, precisely because that is the obvious way to, to organize them. Um, you know, politics is fun to talk about for, for some people, but ultimately it, it matters a lot in people's lives because concrete decisions get made about who has power, what's done with that power, who has money, you know, what's taken from whom and given to whom, how is the world going to work? And obviously if, if, if you're the subject of that 
those kind of decisions, it matters enormously, you know, what actually happens rather than why are people saying it's going to happen. Um, and I think if you look at it at an institution like Cato or Center for American Progress, where, where I work, that these are basically institutions that are grouped along certain families of conclusions about politics rather than families of ways of thinking about the world or even really sort of foundational questions. I mean, I've heard people who work at Cato having quite vehement disagreements about the sort of really, really fundamental questions of of morality and, and political justification. But it's a there's a family of policy conclusions that brings people together because it's possible to work in a cooperative enterprise when you have a goal that you're all working toward, whereas when you have certain habits in common, you know, it, it can be fun to sort of get together or or, or blog back and forth or, or send emails, but it's hard to see what kind of projects you can really collaborate on unless you're you're moving towards some kind of, some kind of common point. Um, so I think the world... I think the world might be more pleasant in some ways if, if our politics was more about kind of who do you get along with. Um, but, but it wouldn't fundamentally make that much sense to sort of do, do politics in that way. The, the outcomes, you know, ultimately are, are why we care about it. Um, not necessarily related to that. Um, <laughs> I guess in, a, in an information processing uh, sort of manner, you know, one, one concern I sort of had going through this book has to do with the fact that it's my sense that people have become much more inclined over the past several decades to describe themselves as being depressed about something or other happening. That, you know, if you have a a breakup with a girlfriend or boyfriend, you might say, well, I've been really depressed lately. If you have some kind of setback at work, if a member of your family dies, something like that. And so in, in times when it used to be that people might say, well, I'm sad, they say, I'm depressed. And, and it's, a, it's a subtle sort of linguistic change, but it comes about because there's been a, a very increased sort of cultural awareness of depression as a, as a medical or mental health condition that's related to the invention of, of antidepressant medications, the you know, more heavy sort of marketing of them, discussion of that kind of thing. So now people who are, who are feeling down will say, not, you know, I've got the blues, but, but I'm depressed. And and I think, you know, most of the time they don't really mean it. Precisely the point about depression is that you can be feeling, you should feel sad if, you know, you find out that, that your wife has been cheating on you and, and, you know, your life is all messed up now. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing pathological about being sad when bad things happen and you feel bad and then you feel better and, and life goes on. People don't take medication for that. They don't seek treatment for that. It's actually a, a, a quite different thing. Um, and, you know, lately, then sort of more recently, I started hearing people, you know, anyone who's kind of fidgety or gets distracted at work will sometimes say, you know, I'm totally ADD today, you know, which really just means like they're working on something boring <laughs> and, and they're having and they're having trouble focusing on it. Um, and even more recently, you know, I've been finding as, as again, for, for good reasons, some of the a lot of the social stigma around autism and around talking about autism has been going away. So I hear more people who are like socially awkward in certain circumstances describe themselves in that way and as 
you know, I'm totally autistic, which which really just means that, you know, once they went to a party and they didn't remember people's names and it was a little embarrassing. Um, but that's a kind of everyday, everyday sort of situation. Uh, and sometimes it's useful, I think, to to take these words from from medicine or, or mental health and and apply them as metaphors. Um, and I think that that's done to great effect when talking about um, information technology here, that that it lets us do some of the things that are the strengths that, that autistic people have. But that, it seems to me, is a metaphor and probably should be understood as a metaphor rather than as, as literally this is what we're doing, right? That you are acquiring certain kinds of technological supplements that can help you, um, you know, accomplish certain tasks that maybe people who fall somewhere on the autism spectrum naturally have the ability to do that kind of thing. But that's probably different from actually saying that we are becoming more autistic as a society. And to some extent, it strikes me as being in tension with the the revisionist account of autism as something that maybe we ought to embrace more, because it seems to me that it implies that to the extent that uh, neurodiverse ways of thinking and ways of processing information have value, that they're actually becoming devalued by our increased ability to sort of slice the world to store information remotely, so on and so forth, that, uh, you know, people who are, are strong have certain advantages over people who aren't strong. But if we develop technological supplements that let weak people lift heavy objects, that's not, you know, that, that's devaluing that kind of thing and, and creating more and more salience to just the problematic aspects of it insofar as we're developing sort of crutches and tools that let us mimic the things that are good in it. So, you know the the book Tyler is a is an optimistic guy always, and and I, I appreciate I think that the sense of optimism that that runs through this book and and his writing in general. I think one of the ways in which we're similar is that we we both object to the sort of downcast view of the world that often dominates political discussions. Um, but at the same time, you know I I do think you shouldn't just be just be optimistic uh, about everything, and that there's actually this analysis implies some real problems for people, and also that what what I got in my reaction when I wrote about this book was a lot of concern from the parents of autistic children that a lot of sort of loose talk along these lines is going to obscure the fact that, you know, their kids are in need of a lot of special help, that there's dedicated funding streams that go to them, that, you know, the special interest politics around it can get a little ugly uh, from time to time. But it still is the case that, you know, there are real problems and, and real handicaps that people need to deal with, that we've learned some ways to overcome those things and that that's been very useful. To, to people and to their families and that it's valuable to continue to, to sort of dwell on those matters and, you know, provide treatments, provide the special education that people need. That's what I've got. Thank you, Matt. Uh, our third commenter today was to have been uh, Jeff Schaller from American University. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a close friend of his uh, passed away over the weekend, and he had to attend the funeral today. So I know he would much, much rather be here. Uh, we are delighted uh, to have uh, recruited at the last minute Robin Hansen uh, to come and, uh, and provide his comments. Uh, Robin is an associate professor of economics at uh, George Mason University, working down the hall or from, uh, from Tyler. Uh, <clears throat> he is uh, perhaps best known uh, as an expert on the idea of uh, ideas, futures, idea futures markets, uh, which uh, caused a bit of controversy a few years back. Um, he's also uh, well known uh, to people who read blogs as uh, the lead blogger and now the 
only blogger, at Overcoming Bias, uh, which is a wonderful uh, blog uh, about all the ways in which we trick ourselves into believing the things we want to believe uh, rather than dispassionately uh, pursuing the truth. Robin's career path is as interesting as the way his brain works. Uh, he was uh, for uh, got degrees in physics and was for many years uh, a research scientist in artificial intelligence before deciding to switch careers and uh, get a doctorate from Caltech in social science, which eventually brought him to George Mason and to the Cato Institute this afternoon. So please welcome Robin Hanson. Spock was not captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> there was not a write-in campaign, to my knowledge, to put him there. The few times when he was forced to take charge, I believe he did a quite competent job, but there was no movement then to uh, put him in a permanent position, and people seemed to be quite eager to uh, get him back off the chair and put Kirk back in charge. Uh, <laughs> Tyler's argued, and perhaps persuasively that autists are more objective and reliable about uh, sort of fundamental what we should do ethically or practically from a political point of view. Uh, it seems to me that most people, if, even if they don't know that autists are this way, they, they have a sense that there is a state of mind that's that way, that there is a state of mind that's more objective, more neutral, more cosmopolitan, and that uh, there are people out there who can be in that state of mind and who can give you a more objective, neutral, unemotional uh, analysis of politics. And most people are not interested in those people. <laughs> there is relatively little demand for those sorts of people. Uh, they are not eagerly sought out as political candidates or as TV pundits. <laughs> um, so. Even if we grant Tyler's point that the people who happen to think like him happen to be more right than the rest of you, uh, we may still uh, be concerned or, or realize that uh, the fundamental problem isn't that there are better, more objective ways of being political, but that people aren't interested in them very much, that there's relatively little demand. So uh, I think one of the key insights uh, in the theory of public choice in, in economics about politics, uh, inside elsewhere, is that uh, for most people, the reason why they are engaged by politics and uh, what they get out of politics just couldn't possibly be the effects on the world of the policies, that people must be engaged in politics and that sort of the functional reasons why it's good for them and why they like it and what they get out of it must be more the things that happen to them personally out of how they deal with politics, how other people interact with them on it, how other people see them because of that. And we can see in Tyler's example that Tyler wants to find people who are like him to talk about politics, and that's perhaps more important than the outcomes uh, in terms of coordinating to produce outcomes. And I think that's true for most of us, in fact. Uh, we like to have leaders who are admirable and uh, impressive that we uh, aren't ashamed to associate with. Uh, we like to choose our political sides to identify with one side or another and, and disputes because of the sides we want to take and how we want to present ourselves, but not so much for how it will make the world a better place, although we'd like to think that way. Uh, so as was mentioned, I'm very interested in work on betting markets as more objective, accurate ways to estimate a variety of things, including in politics. And even there, I again run into the same problem. You can invent a better way, a more objective way to estimate political outcomes, 
but you can't make people like it <laughs> or want it. Uh, and fundamentally, that's a basic problem that we all deal with when we analyze politics. We do a lot of work to figure out, in our best judgment, what really is a better answer. The question is, but who wants a better answer? Um, so that's my long-winded elaboration of, I don't, I don't think any of the things I'm saying here Tyler doesn't know or even disagrees with, um, but I have to say something. <laughs> there are very few things I could say that he doesn't already know. Or, all right. In terms of the, 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 the book is a wonderful book because it has a, so many, oh, such a wide range of topics that are thought-provoking for me that, that make me think about uh, what's uh, going on in the world and how I understand it. One of the things that I find especially provoking is his emphasis on stories, that we live our lives in part to tell the story of our lives and that we buy products or do things on the web, et cetera, to arrange in our minds a, and a, a story of what our lives are. And he likes to... He makes the analogy to, say, photo albums, that photo albums are this way you can flip through the pages and see the story of your life. And now we, we have much more elaborate versions of photo albums on the web. Now we not only have Flickr and various photo pages, but we have our lists of friends and we have all the web pages we've ever seen and all the blog posts we've ever made. And it makes this elaborate story of our lives. I think it's a compelling analogy, but it's interesting and distinct that the story of most people's lives is pretty boring compared to the story of most stories. <laughs> most characters and stories are much more interesting as a story than most of the people around us, uh, which is striking and puzzling if what we were trying to do was live our lives to tell a story. Uh, you would, if you wanted to live a life to tell an interesting story, you would take more chances, you would risk your life more often, you would do more dangerous things and yell at people more, perhaps, and <laughs> throw things. Uh, <laughs> But we don't do that, um, and there's a tension there, and I think to understand this idea of our living our lives to tell stories, we need to get more at that distinction. And that's related to this other point, which is uh, that the autists and the new world of activity supported by the web is more of a world of collecting. It's uh, more a world where rather than achieving one singular achievement in your life, you collect lots of little things. <laughs> around you, and he calls it more like a marriage, where a marriage is this rich, long set of relationships, you couldn't, things that happened to you in your, in your marriage, and then you couldn't really point to any one of them per se as the thing that made marriage grace. It was just all these little things. Um, I guess I grew up in a different era where this seems somewhat um, sad. <laughs> uh, so just let me, I'm almost 50, and I, I therefore get to finally be the old curmudgeon railing against the brave new world. <laughs> and say, uh, I grew up in the, t in the sort of ethic I grew up with, or the sort of worldview I have, are the kinds of stories I wanted to tell about my life. The stories of great lives were stories of singular achievements, of um, putting a man on the moon, or figuring out the equations for quantum chromodynamics, or uh, some great insight, perhaps, or achievement, and that these are the sort of the older story of, of the blockbuster world. The story of lives and compelling stories are lives that lead up to some crucial moment and some crucial decision and some crucial outcome. And these aren't the stories that we tell about our lives so much, and this world of collect oh, story of collecting is, is more so in that direction. And the question is, uh, how much are we losing by focusing the story of our lives on collecting lots of little things rather than 
having some grand big thing larger than ourselves that we dedicate our life toward. Anyway, but it's a great book, and uh, buy it, and then maybe if you have time, read it. Thanks, Robin. It's uh, time now for questions. Uh, and please uh, identify yourself uh, and uh, make it a question and make it pithy uh, right here in front. And wait for the mic, which is coming. Can I get a brief response at some point? Sure. Okay. I'll, I'll let you. Hello. Um, Steve Fritzinger from Fairfax. Uh, Dr. Cowan, I'm one of those parents who might react wildly when I read the book. Uh, so before I do, I'd like to ask you, do you have any personal experience with autism? And in framing, you you'd said you did this um, possibly to be provocative in presenting the argument. Have you found that the analogy um, conflicts with the stereotypes of Kenner's kids and profoundly autistic kids and um, that sort of thing? Uh, that's a very good question. <clears throat> Responding to that, we'll respond uh, <clears throat> to some of Matt's points. Uh, I don't have an autistic child, if that's what you're asking about. Uh, there are different ways we can define autism. Uh, the dsm 4 way to define it is to define it as a series of impairments. And under that definition, autistic people are by definition impaired, which I think is ethically a wrong way to approach what autism is. And as a matter of science, it becomes very hard to figure out how autistic people could ever learn or do better. An alternative way of defining autism is to define it in terms of a genetic or cognitive profile. It's then a kind of objective fact about the person, uh, which may or may not show up in the form of impairments, but it's not a priori being connected to the notion of impairments. You will then have a world where there are many autistic people who need aid, and you will have other autistic people who may be quite successful. Recognizing the possibility of success does not in any way commit you to thinking that the people who need aid should be denied aid. Uh, it doesn't in any way commit you to minimizing the struggles or sacrifices or difficulties experienced by those people and their families. Now, in my view, it's better to have the more fundamental definition of autism in terms of a cognitive profile to recognize a diversity of outcomes. Uh, right now, autistic people who have problems, they don't actually have such a great, they don't face a great level of social understanding. Uh, from my point of view. So if we had a broader notion that I think would fit canons of science and ethics better than the current dsm 4 definition, uh, this, in my view, would be a win-win situation, and I would not view it as devaluing autistics or devaluing the struggles of many people who are autistic. Is that answering or at least addressing your question? Uh, I'm, I'm a little confused by that question. I'm not sure I get what you're asking. Before taking the next question, Tyler asked to uh, have a moment or two to respond to commenters, so far away. Uh, you can I'll respond from here. Uh, yes. uh, thank you both for the comments on the devalued point. I covered that somewhat uh, in my response to your question. But it really is a difficult choice. If you take autistic people and define them as a disorder, uh, this has certain practical benefits in terms of fundraising, in terms of determining when an insurance payment is made, in terms of determining when educational aid is available. Uh, we don't want to lose relevant forms of assistance, but we can still see some broader vision, which is a more optimistic vision and a more diverse vision, and I think a vision also more in tune with science, 
where diversity of outcomes does not represent degradation of the people who have trouble. On, on Matt, conclusions-based reasoning, I'd very much admit, you know, conclusions are what we care about, policy conclusions, but we need to ask, what's the best way to get to them? And I'm not sure us versus them is the way to do that. Let's compare today to the year 1000. I think today our society is much better at processing and evaluating information. So if you're sitting back in the year 1000 and you're wondering, like, how can I advance uh, the struggle for whatever, you know, is the way to advance it by taking the side of the better faction rather than the worse faction and, you know, the struggle to control Burgundy? Possibly. Uh, but another way to advance it is to ally yourself to some dual notion of science and ethics and to think like the world is going to evolve. What matters most is that when we get to year 2009, that people are much better in thinking in terms of science and ethics in a good way, and that should be our primary loyalty. And maybe that attachment will get us better policy conclusions than being partisan in the narrower sense. At least that's my tendency. I'm not a decisive actor. Few of any of us here are. We don't have our fingers on the button, but we're making investments in long-term qualities of human and social discourse. And the notion that we might put a, a broad understanding of science and ethics and a procedural sense of how to be rational, put that above particular politics, it seems to me there's a very good chance that will give us better policy conclusions. And if anything's undersupplied, it's that. And in closing, just to respond to Robin, Robin cares about heroism. I think there's a vision of putting science and ethics first, which is extremely heroic. I think actually Robin is one of the people who embodies that vision. And I regard Robin as a hero. And uh, I know other people who do. And there's a lot of heroes out there. Uh, they're not heroes in the sense that Michael Jackson's a hero. Uh, the number of followers is smaller. Uh, but it's not about number of followers. I think it's a better sense. Thanks. Right down here in front. Linda Greenberg, uh, Alexandria. Are you going to talk about economics? Somehow I thought the title of the book was Create Your Own Economy, and I'm really not as interested in autism. <laughs> I'm much more interested in the economy and you know, sort of what things to say about it. Well, think of this as neuroeconomics or behavioral economics. What most neuroeconomics does is it tries to figure out how people make economic choices, and it does that by hooking them up to brain scanners. And that's interesting work, but I'm laying out an alternative vision for neuroeconomics. I'm saying take the neurological distinctions which are already present in human beings and see how they influence cognition and behavior and also economic behavior. So I think of this as a way of appreciating different types of intelligence. I see this as a way of understanding uh, the sources of economic growth, which are in part human neurodiversity. Uh, do I think this is a way to understand the financial crisis? Not really. Uh, I do write a lot about that topic elsewhere. Somehow. Well, he, here's a way to try to make it relate, but this is speculative. My view of the financial crisis is that too many people became complacent, and they became complacent in the same ways at the same point in time because they had too many common assumptions. They were taking too many cues from their immediate social environment, and investments were overextended, and policy made this worse. So you had people who were not thinking objectively, who were taking too many social cues, and not thinking carefully enough about the framing mistakes they were making. And you could argue, and I emphasize, this is totally speculative at this point, that autistic cognitive strengths along this dimension might have to some extent actually limited the financial crisis. So if you want something tying the two topics together, that's what I'll serve up. Uh, 
Back there in the back. Hi, my name is Ron. I'm from Northwestern University. Um, it seems like most of the problems affecting our world right now is due to uh, a conflict between short-term and long-term incentives. And unfortunately, usually the short-term wins out. So I was wondering if you're able to use some of the arguments you presented today to uh, address this problem. Uh, this is a problem in executive compensation, and it's an even bigger problem in Congress, this incentive toward short-termism. And I think now we're at a more or less unique point in the history of our civilization where short-term thinking is uniquely harmful, more harmful than it's been in the past. It's always been harmful. Uh, but we now do things technologically that have longer-running impacts, and so the need to think on a longer time horizon has become more pressing. If you're asking, do I have any recipe for how we can do this, uh, I really don't. You might think there's some kind of constitutional reform. James Buchanan has written a lot on this topic. But in my opinion, his proposals, uh, most of them would, probably all of them would not succeed in producing this result. If you have a democracy with relatively short electoral time horizons and a population which is not so well informed, uh, you're stuck with that problem. But if we go back to this notion of how is the year 1000 different from the year 2000, that social discourse today in many ways processes information in a better way, and we have today more people who think in terms of the longer term, still not enough. It's my hope in a long-term sense that, again, this emphasis on procedural rationality, science, and ethics might get us to the point where enough additional people think in those ways that we get better long-term policy results. But no, I don't have a silver bullet. I don't have a simple quick fix or short-term cure for that. Matt actually blogs about this quite a bit. Uh, I think some of his ideas might be for the better in terms of like changing, you know, abolishing the Senate or whatever. I don't know. But I don't think, I don't think they basically solve the problem. No. I don't either, to clarify. So, Matt and Robin, feel free to jump in anytime you, you want to uh, add your two cents. Uh, let's bounce around and come back to the front row here. Right down here. Very much a fascinating discussion. I'm uh, Charles Kenny uh, from the World Bank, as it happens. Um, I wanted to uh, uh, discuss, uh, uh, talk a little bit about this disagreement between uh, uh, Matt and Tyler about ways of, 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 of political discourse. Do you uh, organize around conclusions um, or around uh, ways of thinking? And I'd suggest that, of course, you two would disagree. You know, Tyler is an academic. All the economists hang out together, and they, they, they may disagree on policy conclusions, but they all enjoy making fun of the sociologists, uh, whereas uh, Matt is a policy wonk. Um, he, all the liberals hang out together and um, you know, make fun of whatever their methodological differences. They more make fun of their heritage foundation. Um, I guess blogging actually does provide a, a third way. It allows uh, Tyler to, to in, in one environment, hang out with his economist friends, but also sort of uh, link across to Matt, um, and, and ditto Matt can hang out with his liberal friends, yet um, link across uh, to Tyler. And I guess this panel is sort of perfectly placed to answer the question, has that actually led them to better policy conclusions? Well, we all feel we're getting closer to being right all the time, but I'm not sure... <laughs> I'm not sure what external metric we can use to judge the validity of that. I'd also add, at George Mason, I don't think we really ever make fun of the sociologists. 
What most people make fun of are people who are relatively like themselves, but not in their allied camp. So you, to make fun of people who are just totally different uh, doesn't actually serve the social purposes of what making fun is good for, which is to cement one social alliance at the expense of some other social alliance, which is in some sense rivalrous with yours. Sociologists, Robin, do we ever make fun of the sociologists? <laughs> we have sociologists. <laughs> so maybe Matt or Robin would care to respond on that. Well, you know, I, I do think that in, in an obvious sense, anything that, um, you know, helps you gain exposure to more sort of different points of view and and, and even just cross-cutting arguments and, and conflicts does, you know, improve your, your perspective. Uh, you know, the, the, the more you come to realize that there are lots of smart people out there who are disagreeing with you, um, you know, I think the, the more you you know, just just come to appreciate the the possibility of error, um, which is a very sort of important you know factor in life. Uh, but uh, you know, as Tyler says, it's it's hard to know because, of course, by definition, you you think your views are are sort of evolving in a in a correct direction. Um, you, you know, and and even. Uh, to obtain a, a reduced level of certainty about your conclusions, I think, is intellectually virtuous in, in some ways. But it still leaves you with the question of, well, what am I going to do? It's it's difficult to act on the basis of total uncertainty, um, you know, which is, a, I think, a, another sort of big challenge in the policy arena. People who are, you know faced with dealing with a financial crisis really need to do something. They can't just say something intelligent about the question of a bank bailout, like maybe it's a good idea, but I'm not sure. They have to decide, are we going to appropriate this money or not? Are we going to put this rule in place or not? Are we going to crack the whip or not? And, um, you know, I think smart people recognize that it's really hard to know what the right thing to do is in those situations, but I don't know how much that helps you actually make the decisions. Let me just uh, elaborate on this a little bit because there's a, a contrary dynamic to the sort of beneficent one of, of the blogosphere bringing different worlds together and, uh, and perhaps cross-fertilizing uh, ideas. And that is the critique of the blogosphere is this series of echo chambers where people just listen to people who agree uh, uh, with them already uh, and therefore it just ramps up their partisan fervor rather than getting them anywhere closer to the truth. And I don't know if bloggers all, you want to take a stand one way or another on, uh, on which dynamic is uh, winning out? I have a related comment. Yes. So if we really wanted to just know which policies would work best, we would bet on it. <laughs> what we instead do is talk a lot, and we're arguing here about who should we be talking to, and I would claim that's because the real fundamental dynamic is politics is about social bonding, and the actual social ultimate policy consequences are not of personal importance, although they are of collective importance to us all. And that's why this seems like an especially salient important point, but honestly it's not so important that we talk to each other with this network of associations or that network. The important point is how do we actually pick a policy such that it works? And I say bet on it. Bet on it would be a much more reliable way to find out which policies would work. Well, I'm not sure I even really understand what that would mean in, in, in practice, but maybe we could. Um, yeah, you know, I, I do think on, on, on the fervor question, you know, you, you certainly see some of that. I mean, in, but in, in my experience, you know, people who have very fervent ideas 
find new ways to express them on the internet. I, I think it's hard to find specific examples of people who once upon a time were extremely moderate and, and constrained and, and polite in their way of discussing things with other people, but were trapped by the web of internet partisanship into becoming really strident and extreme. I, I think it would be it would be hard to it would be hard to imagine exactly how that would happen, right? I mean, it, you, do, you do see it on cable news shows, though, don't you? You do, but I mean, the reason you see it on cable news shows is because the producers want people to argue in a certain kind of very constrained way. And you know, I'm sure other people on here may have had the experience of talking with a booker and then being sort of turned down because it turns out that your opinion isn't as diametrically opposed to the other person as they wanted. The internet does not eliminate that dynamic, but it relaxes it. Thank you. I, I do agree with Mr. Lindsay that the blogosphere is really not creating or is, is a blogosphere where everyone who wants to read what they want to read, what they agree with, is there. My question, and you mentioned about social bonding for policymaking and the so-called experts, I disagree with that. I think those people making these major decisions on economic decisions – policy decisions who we or the cable or the blogosphere or or center for american progress or cato or any other institute that has formed a group to lobby are not talking to those of us who really may have solutions so how do you get to be quote unquote the expert with some suggestions or alternatives to the economy to health care if you're not in with the in-group politically, one, then two, aren't giving money because that's what politics is all about now. And we're not being heard unless you join a group and go out there and carry a banner or a flag and wave. And I don't think the blogosphere is the answer because I know I'm not going to go read everything on every blogosphere. And Mr. Cowan, it's interesting you used autism and mental health. It is a, being a clinician that's nice. Psychiatry is an art not a science, and it's an interesting analogy. But I want to get back really onto the realistic issue of ex- the so-called experts that are being put out there and are in elected office and the president, et cetera, who are really just pitching what their group wants them to pitch and not getting to listen to other people who say, hey, you know, maybe there's another way to do this. How do you get there? How do you do it? How do you get these people involved? Thank you. I don't have answers to most or maybe not any of your questions. But I would second what Matt said a moment ago about error. Uh, The older I get, the less I worry about influence and the more I worry that I might be wrong. Oddly, I found that as that change has come, I've achieved more influence rather than less. And I'm not sure, you know, what's causal. But I think, you know, our first duty is to worry that we might be wrong and, you know, wanting right on your side and wanting to be on the side of right are, are two very different things. And I think there's a niche for, as a secondary consequence, having more influence precisely because you think that way. There's not enough room in that niche for everyone to occupy it. Uh, but it's, if there's any under-occupied niche, it's like the niche of people who actually try to think that they might be wrong and change their mind on things. And I could give you a, you know, a long list of topics where I've decided I'm wrong or maybe switched back more than once. Uh, 
and I guess I'm now suspicious of people who don't have such a list, I think. Maybe they got it all right to begin with, but I doubt that. So, like, my personal program really has changed to trying to find better algorithms for figuring out when I'm wrong. And that's really uh, what I think I've gotten better at. I don't think I've gotten better at answering your questions. I wish I had. <laughs> Well, obviously, it, it is a liberal think tank. I mean, that's that's what it's there for. Um, <laughs> you know, I think if, if we felt that liberal viewpoints should have less influence, we would be doing a very different um, kind of thing. Um, you know, it... it uh, it, it just goes back to, to what I said before. There's, there's sort of inherent difficulty in, in trying to do advocacy of, of any kind because, you know, I think... Um, if you want to do advocacy effectively, there are certain moves you have to make that aren't necessarily the ones you would make if you wanted to be as accurate as possible. And at the same time, you think, well, if all of the scrupulous people decide to deliberately be ineffective, you know, how's that going to help the world? But if all the pe if everyone decides, well, I'm so indispensable that I can afford to be unscrupulous, then how indispensable are you, right? Steve, back there. Yeah, I'm just Steve. Um, <laughs> Steve Tellis at Johns Hopkins University and New America Foundation. Um, when I was thinking about the distinction between what Tyler and Matt were arguing, one distinction that came into my mind was um, Oakshot's distinction between civil association and enterprise association. And an enterprise association is one that's oriented toward a goal, right? And people join because they, they want to produce that goal, they want to produce that in-state. And a civil association exists mainly as a forum, a forum for discussion or argument or investigation. Um, and one way to, to interpret what I think Tyler is saying is that we need more civil association. Um, that one thing that may be dangerous about the, the trends in our politics is that more and more of the, or the organizations that we're creating, if you look at the, the things that are new versus the things that we're inheriting, um, we're inheriting a fair amount of civil association, but we're creating a lot of enterprise association. We're creating a lot of purpose-built organizations around uh, designed around people who want to produce a, um, an in-state. Um, and so I guess one question is, uh, if that's true, why? Right? Why are we, in some sense systematically underproducing um, civil association as opposed to enterprise association. Um, what might correct that, uh, that general trend? Um, and one suspicion is simply that um, civil association is harder, right? Um, that is, for most people other than, than Tyler, who seems to have achieved a kind of zen-like state, most people find suspension of belief difficult. They find it literally painful. Um, to experience. That is, intellectually, it's very hard to literally open yourself up constantly to the possibility of fallibility, much less to put yourself in an institutional context that's um, designed to generate or even heighten that. So I guess the question is, how can we produce more forms of civil association? What might be the, the counteracting pressures, institutional, financial, or whatever, that seem to be generating more enterprise association? I don't see the blogosphere as the world's savior, but I do think one advantage it has is it just gives more people the chance to have an audience. Uh, 
So people who think in a particular way, what you're calling a Zen-like state, I'm not sure I'd describe it as such, uh, can have a larger audience than before. But there's a lot of evidence, you'll see it on Paul Krugman's blog, as a society we're becoming more polarized than before. This does not seem to date from the time of the internet whatsoever. It's long, a long-standing trend. And I'm just saying this worries me greatly. I think it should worry all of us, no matter what our political points of view are. In saying that, I'm not suggesting the correct thing to do is that we should necessarily all converge on the center of the current distribution. That's a totally separate question. Uh, but there's some way in which our ability to speak to each other seems to be breaking down, and I think that that should concern all of us. So when I make some of these points, I think people are reacting a bit like, hey, I want to be partisan. You're saying don't be so partisan. I want to do this. And then they feel frustrated by my point. But you need to keep in mind, most of the people being partisan are not doing what you feel you ought to be doing. They're doing something else and, and possibly much worse. And it strikes me as a very rational worry to have. Or if you look at how Congress works, or I guess doesn't work, is the question. Like on one hand, given my policy conclusions, I'm happy that there's a lot of things that they seem they can't pass. But I do also think it's in part a symptom of some underlying social problems uh, relating to polarization. But I don't have a good theory as to why, starting maybe in the early 70s, American societies become so much more polarized. I wish I understood that. So if the issue is why aren't there more civil organizations and or why aren't there more people taking a neutral, objective, uh, nonpartisan, uh, analytic perspective, uh, then there's the economist answers splits into supply and demand. One story is that there just aren't enough sort of people like that, and it's just too hard psychologically to be that. And the other story is that there are such people available if anybody wanted them, or people have the capacity to be that way if there was a demand for that, but there's relatively little demand for that. My best guess is it's mostly a demand story, uh, that those people aren't respected or eagerly sought out as much, and people quite rationally realize that there's more demand on the other side. Uh, right down here. Hi, Raj Srinivasan, management consultant. I, I, you brought up Paul Krugman a few times, and uh, I'm just curious to if you could give us some uh, concrete examples of, you know, of how you disagreed with him on the in the, in the process, um, where the outcomes might have been similar, but where how you disagreed with him on the process. Are there any examples you can offer? Well, I'd say my policy views views usually differ from those of Paul Krugman, uh, especially the recent Paul Krugman. He's one of the best predictors of what I don't think, I find. Uh, but I find also the way he thinks, uh, in my opinion, it's a very us versus them way of thinking, at least as it's expressed. I don't know Paul Krugman personally. You know, how people come across in print and how they really are, it may be very different. If I read like Matt or Ezra, I don't get that sense. I'm not pretending I have deep penetration into their psyche but I get the sense of this is what they think the arguments are, and if I make some counter-argument, they'll try to respond, and probably at the end of it we don't agree, but I feel they've tried their best to respond to the counter-argument. Uh, Krugman, I think there's a, there's a fundamental shift in his thinking that comes at some point during the Bush administration where he views uh, too many issues in terms of us versus them, and there's like a demonization of opponents, there's attacking of motives that's very frequent, 
And I just think he spends too much time like criticizing people who aren't worth his time because he's a very, very, very smart guy, brilliant economist, uh, has a fantastic knowledge of all sorts of things. But Paul Krugman of today, I find, is a, a pretty good predictor of what I don't think. Just to chime in there, read Paul Krugman columns and see how many times he seems to countenance the possibility of reasonable disagreement with his conclusions, or how many times he categorizes everyone who disagrees with him as either a fool or a knave. To stand up, perhaps, for, for Paul <laughs> Or to, to say the reverse. You know, I, I find in, in, in some of these circles, you, you get the sense that maybe Paul Krugman is the only op-ed columnist in America who goes after his, his enemies this way. And I, and I think... I, I think when you get in a, in a libertarian uh, gathering, people have very fond reminiscences of the Paul Krugman of the sort of early to mid-90s, who was a self-identified left-of-center person who spent a lot of time sort of attacking anti-market instincts um, on the left and, and have a, a special affection for that figure and therefore a, a sort of special disappointment with the, the more partisan columnist uh, of today. So you don't hear a lot necessarily about George Will or Charles Krauthammer or, or other sort of people. Uh, but, but, but I think, you know, if, if you actually, if you know op-ed columnists um, at, at the major newspapers, it's a, it's a, it's a slightly limiting social role in a way that's relevant to just some of the things we're, we're talking about here, that there's a, there's a finite real estate you know, out there, and it is granted to you. And you have to make a sort of very particular choice, right? Am I going to play my role as my side's champion in this debate as best I can, or am I going to do what I might do with no word limit in a slate piece um, when, when I'm not nearly as prominent? And, and I think it's... Um, it's, it's difficult. Uh, D- David Brooks gave this interview when he was first hired as a New York Times columnist, in which I think he quite presciently said that he thought it would probably make his work worse to take the job, but that nobody says no to a New York Times column. Um, and, and I think that's probably true for everyone who has that job. I would just add, you know, we shouldn't focus on Paul Krugman. If you add up all columnists, almost all of them are much worse in this regard than Krugman is, including on the right. So, I mean, you asked about Krugman, and I I told you what I think, but I really don't want to pick on him. And I would point out that being this way actually made him right on some important issues pretty early on. So it's not that his way of being has no advantages. It actually does have some advantages, especially if your side is out of power and your point of view is us versus them. And if you think, you know, most stuff goes wrong, you're going to be right an awful lot. (laughs) So I think, you know, he's going to be pretty right about the Bush people and less right about, say, Obama. And that's, I think, what we've seen. Right down here in front. Uh, Brian Benson, George Mason University. Uh, Let me first observe that, as we learned in the most recent episode of Star Trek, that Spock was removed... Uh, from control of the enterprise because he was overly emotional. He proved to be more emotional than Kirk. Um, Maybe this will tell us something about autism. I'm not sure. But but my question is for Tyler, and I'm I'm still trying to get a grip on what the virtues that you see in autism are, and I'm, I'm taking autism in the larger sense that you use. It's almost a metaphor in a sense, and I see two basic concepts here, positive concepts. One is intellectual independence, uh, heightened intellectual independence, and the second is um, uh, greater pattern recognition capabilities. 
Um, and but with I'm wondering one perhaps one way of trying to get a better feel for what you're what you're saying is let's suppose you were HR director for Google um, and you had the opportunity in that capacity to to reset uh, to redefine the characteristics that you're looking for in new hires. Uh, I'm wondering how you would you know how you would move this in the direction through, through the device of, of, of increased autism. I wonder if you could give us a sense of how you might, how you might try to redefine the, the makeup of the, of the Google workforce. And that's just one way of trying to, get at, uh, trying to get at your basic point about autism. There's a well-known paper in the autism literature which revolves around giving IQ tests to people who are autistics. And if you give them what's called the Wexler test, which is the test most people take, they do less well than non-autistics, and sometimes they do less well by quite a considerable margin. And this is reflected in the real world by a lot of problems autistic people have in, in coping with different issues. But if you take these same people and you give them what's called a Raven's IQ test, which is more abstract, uh, they do remarkably well. They do better than non-autistics, and the leap in the scores of a lot of the autistics is just astonishing. The paper's online. Uh, you can read it there. Now, Google, when it hires employees, it actually does give them a test. Uh, I've seen some questions from these tests. To me, they look actually more like the Ravens test uh, than the Wexler test. So I would say, in that instance, the market, in a sense, is already selecting for certain cognitive traits. Uh, I would stress this. There's no fully satisfactory definition of autism. There's a general sense that the variance of outcomes possible within autism has very much been expanding for a long period of time, as found by researchers. Because there's such a variance of outcomes, it's very much a contested concept. So everyone has some kind of personal experience or acquaintance or child or whatever, connection to autism, and they have a sense of like their connection should be the defining angle. But right now, what we have are scientific bits and pieces, some sense of a cognitive profile, which is a different way of processing information, with some good and some bad outcomes, some sense of genetic markers, which are hard to pin down, and a lot of open questions. So there's more we don't know than what we do know, but I'd just say in the meantime, we should speak about it with dignity, uh, recognize the cognitive advantages, and realize uh, that these cognitive traits are present in a lot of us in different ways, and you know, accept that and in a lot of ways honor it. I think we'll wrap up there. Uh, there's lunch upstairs in the Winter Garden. Uh, there's books for sale outside. Tyler will be available to sign some. Thank Tyler for writing a wonderful book. And Robin and Matt for sharing their comments, and thank you for coming.